the next edition of our Leaders for Humanity series. And I have to say, I'm extremely, extremely proud and excited to have with us uh, today a very, very special guest, Paul Edler, a um, management professor from the United States. And Paul, the first professor I've ever met in a business school who um, declares to be a proponent of democratic socialism. Paul, a big welcome to, um, to the webcast. Thank you, delighted to be with you both, terrific. Absolutely wonderful, and I, I, there's another thing, yeah, you might hear it in the background, the fireworks going off. And I think uh, what better day or night to have a conversation about revolutionary theories than uh, Guy Fawkes night here in the UK. <laughs> where Guy Fawkes, of course, was a Catholic revolutionary, so to speak, in 1605. Uh, but he tried to blow up the House of Lords, which I think is a, is a good uh, kind, of, kind of starting uh, moment for us on this call. But as usual, let me quickly lead you through the introduction. As always, um, a quick word on the flow and order. We're going to just very quickly position our good organization's inquiry. Then we're going to, well, Antoinette is going to introduce Paul properly, and then we will dive into the conversation tonight. And it's going to be really exciting because we will transcend the boundaries of the discussion about good organizations to really look at the question of good society. And as we always said in our inquiry about good organizations, we are looking at the role of organizations at three levels. As good actors in society, how can they contribute to a good society to humanity at large, the inner workings and the, or the role of the organization as a container, as, a, as a, um, a breeding ground for the communities that interact with the organization. Finally, as a trustee for the development of the individual. And I think in that context, it is very useful as we discussed with Paul before the call, to have a, an idea of what good society could look like. What is that utopia that we're aiming for and to which organizations could potentially contribute? And as we point out all the time, we are trying in this inquiry that we started a few months ago to engage not only academics and, uh, and wise leaders um, like, uh, like Paul, but also others who have great ideas or who are researchers in this space and can help us to validate some of the ideas. And finally, the political organizational leaders who are willing to go on a journey with us and experiment with some of those ideas and put them into practice. And again, to remain in the theme of tonight, as, as Karl Marx uh, uh, said in his uh, thesis on Feuerbach, philosophy is not only there to interpret the world, but indeed to change it. And that's, I think, uh, the point at which we have to introduce Antoinette Paul Adler more properly. Over to you. Okay, um, I'm really, really excited to be able to speak to Paul today because um, he's not only professor of management but also of organization sociology and, and environment studies at the Marshall School of Business. He has studied in Australia and France and what I find particularly interesting and what might explain a little bit of what we're talking today, he even worked as a research economist for the French government. Later he was affiliated to Brookings Institution, Columbia University, Harvard Business School, Stanford School of Engineering, that's almost a who is who, and was president of our most important association, the Academy of Management. He also was recipient of the 2013 award for the article of the in the Academy of Management Review, 
But I have to say that I really believe that he has written every decade a groundbreaking article from his insight into enabling bureaucracy to his pledge for social capital and trust, his work on organizational archetypes, and most re recently his strong advocacy for bringing dynamic system level theories such as Marxism and Schumpeter more strongly into management science. So I'm really, really glad to have you here, Paul. I hope you all heard me now. <laughs> and I would like to give you the opportunity to say something more about you, because I know we always miss the most important thing. So if you could introduce yourself in a nutshell, what is the most important things we need to know? Oh, um, sorry, that's a, that's, a, that's a surprise question. Um, apart from what you've already said about me, for which I thank you, your very gracious introduction. Um, uh, I, I think it, what of perhaps most be, might be of greatest interest to this conversation is that this interest in democratic socialism has been a constant thread of my work since I began studying organizations many years ago, many de several decades ago. Um, and it's not come much into prominence in, in my writing, um, but it's... Um, as I look back over my portfolio of work, it, almost all of it's been motivated by the desire to understand what a socialist world might look like. And it does seem to me that looking deep into our organizations can help us envisage uh, such a world and, and learn something about some of the challenges we're likely to face uh, were we to enter such a world. Yeah, I have to, I have to ask, uh, Paul, Looking a little bit into, and of course you made us sweat in the preparation for the session today, looking at kind of uh, political signs much more than we were used to. Um, but I read a little bit on Karl Marx, and he was a, a rowdy uh, youth, uh, to the point that his parents uh, didn't really want to talk to him anymore, and at some stage suggested to him he might want to write a poem about how good uh, the idealistic institutions and at the time were to redeem himself. Um, so is there anything in your youth that uh, made you particularly interested in this uh, notion of democratic socialism? And how does it feel today to be really one of the very few proponents of this theory in the US? Yeah. So to the first part of the question, uh, unlike Karl Marx and, and unlike most people who come to socialism, I, I, I didn't come at it via a revolt against my inherited sort of background. Uh, my parents had been in, uh, involved in the progressive movement in Australia. My dad had been in the communist underground in France during World War II, um, and they brought those politics with them. And I grew up in a household that was committed to radical left politics in Australia. Um, my parents uh, left the Communist Party in despair in the 1950s, as many communists did, um, but their basic outlook on life never changed very much. Um, and I inherited it, and I did have a moment of revolt. There was a little moment there where I thought maybe I was more of an anarchist than a socialist, but I quickly realized my, the error of my ways. And indeed, um, arguably, my entire intellectual trajectory, you might say, if you were looking at it psychoanalytically, you might say my, the entire trajectory of my work has been an effort to redeem the commitments of my parents' youth. Uh, uh, against the abject failures of uh, socialism in the, 20, in the 20th century. I think the ideals are still worth fighting for, and I think we've learned a lot about how to do this right, <laughs> having done it so badly, so wrongly uh, before. 
um, there's, um, uh, I think we have a pretty empowering, inspiring vision uh, in this idea of democratic socialism, or even if there's not many of us in the United States that advocate for it, in, at least in American business schools. It's wonderful, Paul, because you, you uh, reminded me, Antoinette, about um, our discussion with Simon Weston. And I think maybe worth an introduction because Simon A is on the psychodynamic, psychoanalytical front. And secondly, he also came from, from anarchism to kind of more transcendental and, uh, and, and more structural kind of uh, works on, on transformation. But um, Antoinette, uh, back to you. Still suffering a little bit here, but I'm trying to. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, then we go to the next section, I guess, because um, that already... Or let me ask one more question, because I think that's always an interesting one. Um, if I understand um, even Marxism correctly, then um, individual flourishing is at its core. So I guess you also wanted to flourish individual as a human. And I was wondering, what was the main... What were the main um, role models or um, supporters you had in your life to, to flourish individually? Mm. You mean in my academic work? Um, you know, either I, academic work, could be your private life, whatever um, is more important. Uh, Well, I fell in love with an American tourist while I was working in France, and I followed her to the United States, um, and that was 40 years ago, and we're still married. Um, so that has been an important um, source of continued kind of support, uh, without which God knows what I would, what I would be today. Um, but intellectually, um, I confess that I've had a hard time building a community of like-minded people. You might say that's not exactly surprising if you hold such unusual views, <laughs> but I would have liked to imagine that I would have been able to form a community, you know, a nice, big, rich community of colleagues who thought similarly to me and who could, where we could share papers and ideas and challenge each other. Um, and it's probably more of a personal failing of mine than anything else, but in reality, the circle of people with whom I've really had that sort of support is pretty narrow, is pretty small. Uh, at any given point in time, there's only a handful of people who are on this crazy trajectory of thought that uh, preoccupies me. And they have been super important in my life, uh, but few in number and um, uh, d distressingly few in number. I've tried to build more community for this work um, from quite a few years, along with some other colleagues. We ran a Marxist theory sub-theme within EGOS. Um, and each year we attracted... And she told me even that is difficult in business schools. And so yeah. in that sense, I'm so glad that you're here. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Good. Thank yeah, you. so I've tried a few different ways to build more of a community. And I, I, I suppose in the end, I feel very happy that I've built spaces, uh, whether it's within EGOS or within the Academy of Management through the Critical Management Studies division there. Um, the reality, though, is that you know, most of the people in those spaces that I've helped to build 
don't share my very peculiar vision of the world, my very peculiar reading of Karl Marx in particular. And so the, the, it's been a rather lonely trajectory, I have to confess. Luckily, I'm an introvert, and so the loneliness didn't ever deter me. <laughs> but were I a more balanced human being, it would have been a more difficult path, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for sharing so graciously. And I think to, to a degree, when Antoinette and I went on this crazy journey to in, to investigate how organizations could become good we we called it always how do we call it internet our our um uh, midlife crisis moment of of inquiry <laughs> because even in organizations if you try to move towards that more collaborative model i'm not even saying socialist model and the same in academia when you try to actually make people understand that um, there are certain paradigms that might need to be inquired and investigated before researching and writing about them. Those are sometimes very lonely journeys as well. So I actually, I, I have to say, I, um, it, it resonates a lot, I think, with what we have experienced, in spite of the fact that we couldn't possibly be claimed to, to be um, on, on the Marxist side of the house yet. I want, to, I want to come back to, Antoinette, your point, and Paul, your reply on individual flourishing, because that is not quite how I understood Marxist theory, where really it seems to be much more based on, based on, on the community as a starting point rather than the individual. But I'm sure we're going to speak to that in the first section. So here, our usual, usual inquiry structure, we will, we will first dive a little bit into what is good. And actually, in the context of Paul's wonderful book, The 99% Economy, we will start with what is bad, because Paul has very extensively tried to articulate what the crises are that we are facing in modern kind of capitalism. And before this call, I said neoliberal capitalism, and Paul said, well, actually not neoliberal, it's all capitalism. So that's what we're going to start with. And I'm sure Antoinette will also inquire a little bit into the variances of kind of morality and ethics in that context. Then we will move into organizations, because the interesting thing that if you read Paul's book is that his um, theory for the evolution of society is actually based on some of the um, ideas that are coming through in uh, private sector or public sector and organizations. And I think that is very remarkable and, of course, very close to what we are trying to investigate. And finally, then, the big hour, the, um, the, 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 the dish of the evening, so to speak, is going to be the exploration of what is democratic socialism, how to get there, if to get there, and a little bit, we have to go back to business schools. What does it mean for academia? What does it mean for other institutions? So that's the road that we are on. And here I will stop sharing. And Paul, can I um, start you off with that question? For all of those who haven't yet read your book, what is the problem with capitalism? What are these crises of capitalism? What do you see that is not working today? Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, that's, a, that's a good place to start, isn't it? Um, so there are many things that frustrate us with our, our lives today. The, the list is infinite. Um, there are some things we enjoy about, things, uh, about life today too, but if you start with what it is that's frustrating us, there's a long, long list. And many of them are amenable to, all, to solutions that within our reach. Uh, at the individual level, the organization level, you know, changes in the way laws and regulations operate. I have been particularly preoccupied by a series of crises or crisis tendencies that I see being around us today. 
that seem more intractable, that seem to reflect uh, really basic features of capitalism, as I understand the source of these problems, um, and that therefore I, I, I call these crises or problem areas, I, I, I think of them as systemic crises rather than crises amenable to solutions within the prevailing systems, ideological, economic, political, etc. So what are these structural crises? Um, firstly, economic. Um, the the level of irrationality in the way our economy works today is hard to overstate. Um, in my book, I focused on an American audience, and so I picked American examples. So you forgive me if I return to American examples. I think we can easily translate them to other regions, at least of the rich global north. Um, what should I tell you? 40% of Americans couldn't cover an emergency expense of $400 without borrowing or selling some of their possessions. 20% uh, of American adults in any given month aren't able to pay the month's bills in full. Um, over a quarter of American adults had to skip necessary medical care because they couldn't afford the cost. Okay, that's an American problem. The civilized world doesn't have that problem. Um, over 10% of American households are food insecure at some time in any given year, uncertain whether they'll ever have enough food to meet their needs that week. Um, uh, on any given night, half a million Americans are homeless, are sleeping outside or in emergency, in emergency shelters or in transitional housing programs. But at the same time, we have 17 million homes that are unoccupied. Right? Uh, as, as irrationality goes, you know, it's pretty serious. Um, and then we have all, uh, from a purely, a purely economic point of view, just an incredible amount of waste, wasteful consumption, our e-waste, uh, mountains of e-waste we accumulate around the planet, the proliferation of disposable, unrepairable Me Too products. And then in the, on the one hand, all this waste, and on the other hand, unmet needs, you know, for, whether it's for public transportation or cures for the diseases of the poor as opposed to the very well-funded research on the diseases, diseases of the rich. Um, so economic irrationality. Workplace disempowerment is a second one that I uh, think is kind of a hidden crisis. Um, I, the, Gallup uh, runs a poll on workplace engagement, and it's a pretty interesting survey they offer. They find, looking across American firms, that over 50% of all employees are not engaged in their work, not engaged, as opposed to moderately or very engaged. And on top of that 51%, there's another 16% who are actively disengaged. What does it mean to be actively disengaged? If I were a manager, I would, I would be wanting to pay attention to those employees who are actively disengaged. That sounds pretty dangerous to me. Notwithstanding the fact that we have ample evidence that these measures of workplace engagement correlate and predict very powerfully all sorts of positive benefits for business. What fewer safety incidents, better product quality, higher productivity, higher profitability, the, the performance implications of workplace engagement are very powerful, and yet we have so such a big proportion of our workforce who find so little meaning in their work that they're so disengaged. So economic irrationality, workplace disengagement, unresponsive governments, unresponsive to the popularly expressed needs. I, I won't belabor you with offering ex examples there. They're too many, too numerous and too painful to list. Um, we had Henry Mintzberg two weeks ago, who I think was adding to your list very actively. Right. That's right. That's right. I'd say social disintegration. Um, 
there are ways in which uh, the capitalist core of the economy uh, continually reproduces uh, discrimination against women and minorities. Um, we create so much stress in the workplace, juggling home and work responsibilities. We find an enormous pro proportion of American adults reporting ex rather extreme levels of stress. Uh, I won't go into the peculiarities of the American criminal justice system <laughs> but, and health inequities, but many of these social problems find their source in the really fundamental features of a capitalist economy that uh, puts so much burden on the individual to make their own way in life uh, with so little support from the surrounding community or government. And then uh, two more, um, international conflict at a time when we need so desperately international cooperation in particular to deal with the climate crisis, but also to deal with nuclear proliferation, to do with contagious diseases. Uh, you know, what we see over and over again is the rivalry of, uh, of countries that's not just based on national pride and the egoism of national leaders, but it's based on competing business interests of the business classes of America versus China versus England versus the EU, et cetera, right? Um, and then finally, I'll come to the one that's perhaps the most urgent and uppermost in our minds this week, environmental unsustainability. Uh, capitalism, uh, if I had to pick one of these crises as most clearly grounded in the fundamental features of a capitalist economy, it's surely the unsustainability of our industrial uh, infrastructure, um, accelerated climate change, lack of the, the loss of biodiversity, the depletion of the nitrogen and phosphorus cycles, you know, air pollution already causing uh, five, six million premature deaths each year. You know, we, we have, I should say, so I've listed six crises. They are all a, f a function of many different factors. There are many contributing factors to each one of them. My, my point is that each of them also is a function of a very fundamental feature of our contemporary society based as it is on a capitalist form of economy, where firms compete against each other for profits in marketplaces, as opposed to cooperating under some shared plan of what, where we're going, where workers are employees do, and under the authority of a managerial hierarchy. They're not running their enterprises as worker cooperatives collaboratively. Right? And in a context in which the wealth of the, of the society is primarily being generated by this private enterprise sector. Uh, government plays a buttressing, a supporting role, in some places more strongly, in some places less strongly, but in all cases in a capitalist economy, playing a secondary supporting role to the private enterprise in assuring the prosperity of the country. And given those three features, I will argue, uh, or argued in my book, we don't know we need to rehearse all the, 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 logic, the line of logic here, I think it's pretty easy to see how those three features predict the persistence, deepening or recurrence of these six areas of crisis. And you know, some of these are getting pretty serious, in particular the climate crisis, we've run out of time. And uh, we, are get, we need a different system if we're gonna get on top of these problems. And um, as I try to think about what kind of a system it would, it would enable us to get on top of these challenges, uh, I'm led to the conclusion that reforming capitalism can't get us where we want to go, that even the most enlightened form of regulated welfare capitalism isn't up to the task of dealing with these six challenges I described, um, and that we need a different kind of economy, one based on what I call democratic socialism. So yes, those are the six big crises I see. 
And again, I don't want to oversimplify. There are many contributing factors. And a wiser government, wiser corporate leadership could certainly mitigate any or all of these six, six dimensions of crises I just described. The question is, can we overcome these crises? Can we eradicate these crises without some more systemic change? And that, I just for the life of me, I don't see, the, I don't see a pathway. I get that the pathway to a democratic tra socialist transformation is difficult to imagine, but at least I can imagine once we got there, we would have a system that was able to deal with these crises. I don't understand what kind of reformed capitalism could conceivably obviate the environmental crisis, the social disintegration tendencies, these international rivalry, et cetera. So that's the starting point, perhaps, for my, my thesis. And I think we are going to dig much deeper there um, in, in, in a few minutes or in a half an hour or something like that. But I think you really laid out very nicely uh, what is bad, but we haven't yet defined what is good. And I have to say, I struggled a little bit by also reading a little bit of Marxist ethics, what, if, if, if we can call it like this, what is good. So in your writings, I found words like dignity, justice, equal access. Um, so are you also arguing on the basis of universal norms? And, and um, by what do you establish these universal norms? Yeah, good question. Um... I think there's two ways of thinking about this, at least two. <laughs> there's two that come to mind. One is to start from some ethical prior, which is a bit the way you set up the question, uh, Antoinette. Um, um, and there, I think the, the Marxist view is not a particularly unusual one. You know, I think Marxism takes on board a fairly widely shared sense that a good society would be one characterized by equality, mm -hmm. uh, by mutual respect, you know, by respect for the Kantian <laughs> categorical imperative. Um, I would note that that Kantian imperative uh, puts out of moral bounds one of those three fundamental features of capitalism we just talked about, mm -hmm. the status Uh, treating other people as a means to your own wealth accumulation mm -hmm. is by definition immoral. Mm -hmm. It's treating others as you would, as you would never have them, or never want them to treat you as merely a means to your own gratification. So from, a, from an ethical standpoint, I don't know that Marxism is all that distinctive. You can find a very similar ethos in early Christianity, in many of the great religions, you know, in, you know, in, in, in it's a pretty, I, I think we can, I don't know that we need to differentiate Marxism from the broader tradition of sort of democratic thought in, in, uh, that we find in many cultures and many religions and many civilizations. I don't think it's a particularly ethnographic view, ethnocentric view, yeah. I should say. I think the other way of getting to Marx's ideas is not to begin with some ideal version of where we'd like to go, but to observe the nature of the conflicts we see around us in society and to analyze them as objectively as we can and understand their inner dynamics. And there, you know, that was perhaps the novelty of Marx's take on the world, arguing that socialism wasn't some ideal that we should be propagandizing and trying to convince people to buy into, but that socialism was the inner tendency of historical development itself. I, I, many people have reached a similar conclusion. Karl Polanyi really disagreed strongly with the Marxists that he saw in his time, 
that were all involved in the communist movement, so they had a particularly doctrinaire view of what Marxism was. But um, uh, he also saw socialism, much in the sense that I'm describing democratic socialism, as the inherent tendency of an industrial society. Um, when we are as interconnected globally as capitalism has made us, right, when we are no longer struggling to generate enough surplus to feed our entire population when we have an abundance of technological resources the way we do and we're no longer struggling just to put food in people's mouths, um, when we have the kind of universal education that modern capitalist society affords us, uh, it, socialism becomes an almost inevitable sort of tendency of development. And people, uh, if only because people fight <laughs> against the injustices imposed on them, you know, by the, by the peculiarities of this capitalist circumstance. You know, employees are fighting for, for, for more dignity and better job security and prospects for themselves and their children. Uh, uh, people are angry and anxious about the environmental devastation caused by the, the, uh, the, the way a capitalist economy pushes firms to treat the environment as a mere externality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the absurdity of, the, of, company, of countries competing in the international arena when the urgency of international cooperation is so manifest, right, that, that arguably this socialist transformation is, or, is part of the inner dynamic of capitalist development itself, that the further capitalism develops, the more obsolete becomes its peculiar institutional features. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can, I, can I just make one quick follow-up on this? Because... I think Polanyi also famously argued, and, and quite interestingly, the critique of capitalism in the 21st century has, very, has become very utilitarian in reality. It's very based on inequalities and outcomes, whereas Polanyi, I think, was, was stressing the moral aspects of it. And he said, we have to understand the implications for freedom, order and solidarity that underlie any such system in order to actually understand how to improve the system. And here, the way I understood Marxist thoughts, and I I got a quote here that I found very striking in in regards to Antoinette's question, which was very much kind of universal norms, as in, for example, Declaration of Human Rights. And I think Marx famously claimed that individualism was the result of commodity fetishism and alienation. And he criticized the 1789 Declaration of Rights uh, of men and of the citizen as a bourgeois declaration of the rights of the egotistic individual mm-hmm. and um, ultimately based on right to private property, which, which was just reinforcing a systemic logic. And I think what I found striking in Marx, also in, contra- in juxtaposition to Hegel's idealism, was, I think, two things. One, the notion of materialism. And I think that comes through in what you described. So it's much more important to look at the phenomenology of of what is really happening out there and what impact that has on how people behave. So it's famously the environment that shapes your thinking and your doing, as opposed to Hegel, who said the idea is always first. And secondly, I think what comes through is indeed this thinking about classes. So it's really about labor versus capital, which might be today not so prevalent, but it was certainly not the individual as such. It was always the category of, mm-hmm. of labor, so to speak. So the, and the, the Antoinette, I think you would call this a relational um, ontology as opposed to individualist ontology. Am I, does this resonate? Because I think for us, uh, this is one important mm-hmm. thought also in Aristotle, the, 
the embedding embeddedness in the community is critical mm-hmm. in the morality that's that follows yeah that's nicely put i i and aristotle is is a nice point of reference for us all in this um I, I think what, you'll, what I take from Marx on this question is, uh, as is often the case with Marx, a, a kind of interesting ambivalence towards capitalism. On the one hand, uh, capitalism creates a context in which, as individuals, we are freed from the constraints uh, that we experienced in feudal society or slave society, we're free to work for whomever we want or start up our own business. If we can, if we can pull together the resources, we can buy what we want. We can consume what we get. We have an enormous amount of freedom that comes with the uh, institutionalization of the market as the fundamental economic mechanism. Um, that market individualizes us in a way, you know, relative to these pre-capitalist forms of economic organization. And that that's a wonderful accomplishment. That, uh, that, that frees us from shackles of tradition and uh, inherited status hierarchies. Um, and that's a wonderful accomplishment that we should find some way to preserve in whatever new system uh, would supersede capitalism. On the other hand, this form of individualism we see under capitalist condition is a very truncated one and arguably a kind of a, a duplicitous representation of, repre- of reality. To say that we're free to work for whomever we want is also to say uh, you're free to starve by choosing not to work for anybody. Um, it, it is not uh, the case that we are free to work for somebody else or for ourselves because you only get to work for yourself if you've got the capital resources. Uh, that enable you to do that. Um, the, uh, so that the freedoms we enjoy as individuals in a capitalist society have this strange half real, half illusory quality. And it's important, I think, to keep the both aspects in mind. That indeed, a, a true individualism would, have, would not negate its relations to the broader community, to pick up on your formulation, party. that... Uh, that this is a very sick kind of individualism in which the individual liberty comes at the expense of one's organic connection to the, to the wider community. But that's the way capitalism sets it up, where uh, as individuals we're prompted to act in our individual egotistical own interest and uh, provides very little in institutional infrastructure for us to reach out to, 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 our, to our peers in this community relational network and and collectively master our destiny by reaching joint decisions about how we're going to use the resources available to us. But here I think you also contribute, um, now we're in 2021 and Marx couldn't know Habermas, but I think um, with the relational ontology that Otti was talking about and your ethics of contribution, uh, there comes of course another quality of good into your writings. And maybe we can just explore that a little bit. How do people come in a rational fashion to good shared values? Mm. Yeah, so I got drawn to the question of shared values, um, trying to understand how some of the better how some of the organizations that I studied seem to perform so much better than others. Um, it does seem like 
uh, and it's hardly surprising, uh, it does seem like if people in the organization share some sense of their collective purpose, lots of good things happen. Um, in their local problem solving, when they encounter contingencies in their work, they can be guided if they, if to the extent that they have internalized those shared purposes of the organization, they can make better choices in the way they, they deal with the contingencies that arise in their day-to-day work without having to refer up a chain of command, you know, for guidance from their boss, which would slow down problem solving and probably reduce the quality of problem solving because of the problems were being solved further away from the place where they were being experienced. So having a shared purpose would be a lovely thing. And many managers will tell you that. They would say, you know, why, won't, why don't our employees sort of see the shared purpose? And why don't we see people, you know, all pulling together towards the purposes I've articulated for our corporation? Those seem very compelling purposes to me, says the CEO. Um, and, uh, you know, why do, if only people would pull together to achieve them, we would do so much better than we are today when everybody, you know, when my workers are going out on strike demanding this and my engineers are all upset about that. And, you know, why can't we get people pulling together? So shared purpose would be a lovely thing to have. And some organizations have more of it than others. And indeed, I've found it fascinating as a way to frame some of my organizational research to ask, what is it that these organizations are doing when they, made, when they manage to maintain the salience of that shared purpose in the minds of their diverse uh, groups of employees, middle managers, higher level managers, frontline employees, or, or with their different skill bases and specific task assignments. Um, many of the f- people that I see around us today working on this idea of shared purpose seem to think of it as necessarily something rather elevated, you know, solving world hunger, you know, con- contributing in some way to, you know, solving you know, problems of homelessness in our local community or something. Um, notice purposes of the kind I was just referring to are, are not core to the business. They're bigger, more noble purposes than these, the mundane things we concern ourselves in our business. So that's one way of thinking about purpose. It seemed to me the organizations that had struck me as so remarkably effective were ones that created a sense of shared purpose where the purpose was core to the business. So I use, I refer in my book because I've had a chance to study them in some depth, depth an organization here in the United States uh, by the name of Kaiser Permanente. It's a big healthcare uh, insurance company, uh, hospital network, and network of doctors you know, who, pr- who provide care for uh, their patients. Um, uh, th- their purpose is what? Uh, making people healthy, <laughs> keeping people healthy, keeping communities healthy. Um, I remember a colleague of mine from Kaiser told me that how impressed he was visiting one big uh, hospital. He was waiting with a delegation to be led upstairs for some seminar and was chatting with the receptionist at the front desk of the hospital entryway. And he said, oh, so what's your job? And she says, oh, um, I, I help make our community healthy. That's pretty cool (laughs) if the receptionist at the front desk thinks that that's her job, right? Because she's going to be more attentive to the needs of the people walking in than, you know, somebody who defines their job in narrowly bureaucratic kind of way. Um, So how do they get that? Well, that's complicated. 
But uh, in the work that I've done with Charles Heckscher on this, we try to identify some general principles that seem to explain the sorts of things that firms were doing to sustain that sense of shared purpose. Uh, and then what you'll discover in my book is that I take those same, four, those same principles and I say we could apply them on a much wider scale to the organization of our, of, of our democratic socialism, that we, don't, we can take some of these principles that seem to be at work in some of the better managed of our big corporations and apply them to the management of whole industries, whole regions, indeed the whole national economy could be managed collectively, strategically, democratically, um, using those same sorts of principles, it seemed to me. Uh, so I haven't told you very much about what they are or how we institutionalize them, but those, that's the general idea. Yes, Otti. Sorry, Paul. I will, I will stop you here because you're stealing our thunder a little bit because that's, of course, where we want to get to. But I want to ask you in the, in the first section, which was really more focused on the ethics, I want, to, I want to ask you one more question and then let's indeed dive into Kaiser as an example. Whilst you were talking, however, I was thinking if that was Philip Morris and the receptionist would say, I'm helping to make people die with cigarette smoke, <laughs> that would, in my books, not qualify as good. So I think yeah. in our thinking, the shared purpose is still somehow anchored in a belief for the greater good, which, of course, in healthcare and caring industries is very simple because that is naturally close, whereas I think in some other commercial firms that would be more problematic. But I, I want to leave that for one second. I wanted to dive into one little aspect of your theory before moving to the organization aspect, which is you're, you're making a stark claim, I think, because I, on, on the six crises, we would probably all agree. And then you say that is endemic in capitalism. So this, this um, as you call it, that system that works for only 1% of the people is a result of the very underlying conditions of capitalism itself. And I think here probably several people would start to frown a little bit, right? Especially in the way that you describe it in your book, that capitalism, capitalism must create waves of unemployment and of exploitation and so on. Mm -hmm. But I will also gloss over that a little bit. I just wanted to make the point. What I'm interested in is why can capitalism not be fixed? And I think you made the point that there are improvements possible. And that was Henry Mintzberg's thinking. He said a good society is where we have a responsible uh, government, we have uh, socially responsible businesses, and we have a very engaged plural, i.e. his word for third sector, that is creating a, a vision of, of kind of checks and balances. Or alternatively, we had Stefano Zamagni coming from a Christian social theory, saying a civil economy would be where we are back to the market being the genus and capitalism being the species. So there's a good form of market possible. And actually, if we look back in history, especially European history, we can see a responsible usage of the market that is embedded in a good society that is not having the characteristics of, of um, uh, the nasty aspects of capitalism that, that, that you cite. So... And I think Antoinette made a point in our pre-readings on the Nordic countries, which you quote, which arguably uh, in a version of, kind of social demo, demo, democracy and uh, evolved capitalism have very high happiness scores, which again would to a degree say, well, maybe it's not the perfect system, but people seem to be very happy with that. So I want to go a little bit into this. Marxism has often been criticized for a too simplistic economic determinism. 
right? Where exactly like you described, kind of capitalists are bad, therefore everything is bad, and the only way is kind of the labor class has to overcome the, the capitalists, and then everything will be bright. Why is ethical capitalism not possible? Why is Ed Freeman wrong who says stakeholder capitalism could actually kind of be a good compromise? Getting to ownership structures, to your point, that are taking into account the greater good, getting to power structures that are more participative, but that is still embedded in a system that is governed by market relations as opposed to nationalization of strategic management or planning, as we will hear from you in a second. Mm -hmm. So I did want to come back and talk about purpose um, and, and, and Philip Morris. So at some point, let's make sure we do that. Um, but let me first of all answer your second point. Um, I'm just trying to pull up some notes here that will help me give you a succinct answer to it. Um, let me just pull this up here. This will help me. Um, I think the point that I would make about why reforming capitalism is not going to get us there is, is very simple. And I don't know that anybody really disagrees. So, so that's an interesting part of this conversation. Look, here's the, here's the problem as I see it. To be sure, firms have some room for philanthropy. Obvious. To be sure, firms can sometimes do well by doing good. No doubt. To be sure, firms can do a lot better than what they are in terms of their environmental and social responsibilities and make even more money. Many firms can, uh, can do that. My point is very simple. I don't see how that space for win-win opportunities is any, gets anywhere near large enough to deal with problems like the global climate crisis. I will also make the same claim about cycles of unemployment. Uh, no one has shown me that capitalism is capable of sustaining itself for more than a couple of decades at a time without a major economic crisis that generate that throws lots and lots of people, workers and their families out of work. Um, that is a recurrent feature of every form of capitalism we have ever seen, including the Nordic. Um, the, um, so I, I think the fundamental problem here is that if we rely exclusively on businesses doing what they want to do uh, and wise leadership in those businesses, there are, there are these broader systemic problems that it's simply unrealistic to expect firms to solve voluntarily. So now the question is, can we imagine government stepping in, you know, in the form of a welfare regulated state to remedy those problems and set the enterprises on a path where in, in order to maximize their profits, they have to, uh, they can only do that by satisfying these other social or environmental needs that we have. And there the problem is fairly straightforward. Um, it's, it's known in the science, social science literature as the, the, um, as, the, as the structural power of business problem. It's not a question just of firms lobbying government. You know, America has a peculiarly corrupt political system that gives firms a lot more power to influence government legislators and regulators through private donations and all the rest of it. But that's not the fundamental problem. Even if with the most enlightened government in the world in place, no government can afford to impose on the private sector regulations or taxes of, of, a, of a magnitude that will cripple the private sector's profitability. That would throw millions of people out of work. The government would lose its legitimacy. The government would fall too. 
can we solve these big problems we're talking about without imposing on, on business crippling levels of regulation and taxation? I say the answer is no. Uh, uh, the, the clear clearest evidence for this argument is in the, the case of the environmental crisis. Um, everybody's making happy talk about how we can you know, impose a, 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 a carbon tax and steer the, the, the industry towards a, a, a zero emissions future. It's too late to do that, fellas. The business community has, has successfully resisted the imposition of regulations and taxes when this, became, when this problem became obvious 40 years ago. They've successfully resisted every effort to impose even modest levels of, of emissions control um, and now we're faced with an, a dire emergency where we need to impose massive reductions of emissions very rapidly on an enormously complex economy. And um, I just recently calculated for my own university. So here's a little story for you. We have a university president who's very committed to environmental sustainability. She, she has gotten us developing a plan for sustainability on our campus with, with a zero emissions goal for 2030, approximately 2020, approximately 2020, 2030, 2035, I forget what. Now, the biggest sources of emissions are the electricity we use, but we don't create our electricity, so we're dependent on the electricity supply. So let's put, take that aside. The second biggest source of emissions is the commuting that our students and faculty and staff do in their cars. There's not much we can do about that. Eventually they'll have electric cars, we'll deal with that. Okay, what we, can, what we do control is, uh, is the next biggest, the biggest chunk of our emissions is due to the boilers that we use to heat water to create steam for heaters and hot water in the bathrooms and kitchens across our huge university campus. Uh, it turns out that if we were to, so they, those boilers have a 40 year time, time uh, lifespan on average. We need to replace them all, uh, they're gas boilers emitting huge volume of CO2 we need to replace them with electric, boil with electric boilers. They have a 40-year lifespan. If we were to try to accelerate that replacement schedule so that it, instead of happening over the next 40 years, it happened over the next 10 years, I calculated what we would need as a price of carbon emissions, a carbon tax, in order to make that cost effective for us. You know what the carbon tax would need to be? It would need to be over $1,000 per tonne. What is the carbon tax currently operative in Sweden, the most aggressive country in Europe on CO2 emissions? What is the carbon tax in Sweden? It's minuscule compared to what we, what we would need. Right? And, that's, and everybody acknowledges that carbon taxes are, are, are just a small part of the package of change we need. Right? But you will bankrupt enormous sectors of American economy or the Swedish economy, the European economy, if you, if, when and if we if force on them the changes that we need to save the planet from climate catastrophe. We can do this, we can make this change, but only if you socialize industry. So that's not regulating industry, offering subsidies, you know, re, uh, you know, putting into place standards for their products and processes. That's effectively controlling what the way they work. And the closest example I've come up with is World War II, the economic mobilization of the US economy or the Australian or British economy in World War II, where effectively government took control of industry. Ostensibly, it was still private enterprise, but the, the private enterprise form was a pure shell 
um, you know, they ensure they, they guaranteed the investors some modest return on their capital for the duration of the war. But government told industry what to make, financed industry. They were responsible for over half of all investment for the duration of the war, specified exactly who could consume what and when and how. Right. This was socialism, war socialism. Right. And the magnitude of the economic of the crisis we face in the environmental dimension today is of co quite comparable to the magnitude that we faced in, in, in remobilizing the economy to a war economy during World War II. There's a similar breadth of transformation of industry and the infrastructure. Um, and so my argument is simple. It's that dealing with these fundamental challenges, environmental, but also these others that I discussed, would require of government that it acts so uh, strenuously vis-a-vis -vis the private sector, it would effectively be taking control away from private enterprise. You're no longer living in a capitalist economy if government's control is so expansive and its, it, it's, its economic imbrication with enterprise through subsidies and loans and investment is, is so intense. So that's why it seems to me, you know, where, you know, think if we're thinking you're seriously... Saying that it, it, any other intervention isn't possible to the extent that it would solve the crisis. Right. I, I think there's a, probably also some arguments to be had, but I think we go to the, to the org section now. The next um, section, but um, I just wanted to, and we take that up later, Paul. I want to share something with you. We had a vote in Switzerland on carbon dioxide taxes, and we said no, and it wasn't a very high tax. So I think, and, and I mean, I'm a big believer in direct democracy, but we might run a little bit into trouble if we have that part of your system, which is the, of course, very important part going together with it. But we're going to discuss about that, I'm sure. Okay. I mean, like, but I did want to, before we leave this first part, let me come back to the question of purpose and, and Philip Morris, a cigarette company, because it's a perfectly fair statement. What I didn't say earlier on when I was talking about shared purpose was that what I was trying to get at was that arguably every enterprise has a purpose in the, in the sense that we're using the term. And, and I, in Marxist terms, I would put it very simply. Capitalist firms produce commodities a com a, in, this, in the Marxian sense of something being produced for sale. As a, I don't mean commodity in the sense that oil is a commodity, but my iPhone is not. Um, a, a commodity in the generic sense of something produced for sale. To be a to be successful commodity producer, your product has to generate revenue as an exchange as an item of exchange value. But in order to do that, it has to be of use value to other people. It seems to me every enterprise has a purpose, the use value. And that's in tension with the with with the other purpose that, of making profit for the shareholders. Every enterprise has two competing purposes, and they're not always in opposition, they can be mutually supporting. Right? But there's two purposes that have a complex relationship to each other, the use value of what they produce and the exchange value of what they produce. And every organization tries to get its people focused on that use value aspect in part, right? because they want people to make the right decisions about the product quality and all these other attributes. Right? So, let me, so, so I think purpose is really deeply embedded in every organization's, capitalist organization's functioning, and some do a better job than others of keeping people's attention on the on that use value purpose aspect. Let me come back to the cigarette manufacturer I, because I had a chance to talk many years ago with the then CEO of Philip Morris. Um, oh no, he wasn't the CEO. Excuse me. This was John Reed, who was the CEO of Citibank, but who happened to be on the board of Philip Morris. 
He also sponsored, in his role at Citibank, he sponsored uh, the Organization Science Winter Conference for many years. Um, and so at one such meeting, he showed up, and we, I happened to be sitting beside him at, uh, at lunch. And I said, John, um, you're very, <laughs> I'm so impressed by how thoughtful you are, but it, can you explain to me why you feel okay sitting on the board of a company like this? And he said, Paul, people like to smoke cigarettes. It gives them pleasure. We warn them about the health consequences. People do all kinds of things for pleasure that have bad health consequences. We, they need to be informed when they're making these decisions. So the purpose, the, the receptionist at the, at the Philip Morris headquarters, presumably she would say, or he would say, my job is to give people pleasure. And I hope that they do it with informed consent, so to speak. I hope they do it in a way that, you know, where they understand that there may be some trade-offs. But this is a form of pleasure people like, and we are really happy to provide so many people with a source, such an innocent source of, of, of pleasure as smoking a cigarette, when there's so many other forms of pleasure that they could indulge in that would be even more destructive to themselves and their communities. Right? So um, without being too ironic about it, uh, you know, I, I think the fair thing to say is that, you know, th there's use value here. You know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't put them out of business, but, you know, you can see the argument. Yeah. And shared values, of course, doesn't mean ethical values. So that's also the clear point you just were making. And we just had an interesting discussion with Harry Tsukas, who wrote a paper on the Aristotelian conceptualization of that. So that might be an interesting compliment when you next time, and I'm sure you go next time to that topic again in, in yeah. your writings. Um, so we're back to let, the Christian social thought, bringing Christianity into yeah, socialism. Yeah, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> we have talked enough with Castle Socialish, uh, Catholic um, social teaching, virtue, ethicist. So that was also very, very interesting, but I I felt that was a little bit of a stretch for Paul, probably. We're not going to do that here. Um, but I think it's very important to understand better your high road organizations, which we would also call the good organizations, because you later, of course, build on these and say you, we can learn a lot of them. And so in a nutshell, can you uh, describe us maybe with an example, um, what good organizations you have studied and what makes these so special? All right. Um, yeah, so the high road organizations is an expression that emerged in American uh, social science, especially sort of among sociology and labor relations scholars, to describe firms that um, uh, saw a path to competitiveness based on collaborative relations with their workforce, upgrading their workforce's skill, um, proactively recognizing the, the legitimacy of union representation and engaging in, you know, meaningful dialogue with those union representatives, you know, um, uh, not avoiding their responsibilities on the environmental or social front uh, in their relations with the local community or beyond. Um, so uh, roughly speaking, you might say these are firms that are competing on quality, innovation, flexibility, rather than only on cost. But I don't, but it's a very rough equation because I think there are some organizations that I would classify as high road, um, or, uh, even though their primary competitive pri imperative is cost. So I don't, I don't want to marry the high road thing too strongly to the innovation flexibility dimension of, of, of competitiveness. Uh, Toyota 
for many years, had a number of plants that were unionized where, where uh, the plant leadership engaged a constructive dialogue with the, with the union and, and engaged their workforce in these uh, Kaizen efforts and improvement efforts, all oriented towards low-cost production. I'm thinking of the Numi plant that I studied in California for a long time that wasn't producing a mid-range or high-range vehicle, high-end vehicle. It was producing the very cheapest of their vehicles. But, you know, everyone was dedicated to producing the very best, cheapest small car that they could create. Um, and uh, so the high road here signals um, a, a willingness to take on those challenges of a constructive engagement with the workforce and with the broader social environmental responsibilities, and in particular in the American context, a willingness to engage unions in that effort. In Europe, that union engagement part is you know, often just given as an institutional kind of taken for granted as a feature of the institutional context of business, but in America it takes a unusual organization to em embrace the unions as a potential source of strength rather than as an enemy to be, to, to be crushed. And so you're mainly arguing that they are very good in, first of all, um, having a high amount of democracy, but still um, being um, centralized to some degree, efficient to some degree, innovative to some degree. So um, all the ideas you later use for um, um, your concept, okay. collaborative, strategizing, innovating, etc., are developed on that premise. And so maybe you can walk us through this a little bit. Sure. Sure. Can I interject, yeah. Antoinette? One thing, Paul, maybe before going to the principles. So there's, um, I'm still not entirely, so the first section was about what is good. And I think, so I heard different parts. I heard kind of democracy. I heard some degree of, of um, rights and flourishing. I heard use value. Um, not only profit, but some profit. So, I find it still very difficult to somehow, if we say we want the institutional system at organizational or societal level to be directly correlated with what we see as ideal outcomes or the, the, the goodness, I'm still finding it rather um, complicated to see that line. There seems to be some kind of sometimes a bit more ideology to say, okay, I need unionization. Yeah, but if I look at German co-determination, that doesn't always seem to be correlated with higher use value, for example, or, or better performance of the organization. We have very um, interesting research because in, in Germany, for example, the percentage of union rep or no, co-determination rather than union representation depends on the size of the firm. So we, we can actually see what the implications are for performance. Right, so I would say that there seems to be arguments about what the qualities and characteristics of the firm are that are in my books not entirely related to the crises. Yes. So, so I'm sorry. So your question, Adi, is how would I characterize what makes an organization a good organization? Is that the question? Correct. So in, in, in the way that you frame good, which I still have to get my head around a little bit, but the, in the way that you frame good, how does it relate to structures, processes, internal norms, governance, or whatever features you find salient to Antoinette's point in the organizations that you looked at. And you looked at organizations that are not strikingly similar, so to speak. So Kaiser Permanente, healthcare provider, NUMI, 
TPS, uh, we know all about it, right? So in terms of uh, General Motors and, and Toyota, you looked at Mondragon and, and some other professional services organizations, and you extrapolated principles from them. So I'm still wondering, what is that correlation? And then um, secondly, moving to where Antoinette wanted to go, the description of this collaborative archetype, I think it would be very useful that you could, you've written extensively about the evolution of management models and archetypes Maybe you could frame that also in the context so that people see between market hierarchy and community, how do you configure your archetype? But maybe if you have a thought on the first point and then go towards the second. Okay. Um, yes, forgive me. I, I, you know, we're, uh, our discourses, my discourse has been meandering. Um, I think you're asking me with the first point, uh, what, in my view, makes an organization a good organization. Is that right? Am I getting the, the characteristics that are making it good and why? Yeah. So, I think a good organization, in my view, is not very different from anybody else's view. It's an organization in which people feel like they've come together to produce something they care about producing, and, and they organize themselves to uh, uh, so that they are as effective as possible in the collaborative work they need to do in the cooperation necessary to achieve the business's goals. Um, and uh, they leave at the end of the day, have felt with the feeling that they've been treated with dignity and respect. Um, so I, I th maybe that's all I need from my point of view to characterize a good organization. I would argue that in a, that in a capitalist world, a for-profit enterprise uh, encounters some pre pretty insurmountable obstacles to achieving that goal. And th those obstacles are fairly simply stated. It's, uh, it's because the purpose that might bring people together in a collaborative way is only ever half the purpose of the organization. The other half is generating profit for its investors. And those two aspects always coexist in a very uneasy relationship. And, so, and that uneasiness gets in the way of any capitalist firm meeting my good organization criteria fully. Um, so that's competition in the marketplace corrodes those features that I think would be define a good organization. And the employees are just there as employees. They're not there as full human beings. They've, they're there as instruments of the, of the, of the investor's purpose. Um, and to the extent, to that extent, uh, they are not treated as full with the full dignity of a human being. They're an instrument of somebody else's purpose. And so, um, that said, organizations differ. In some capitalist organizations, there is more of a sense of shared purpose. In some organizations, 
that affront to human dignity of being treated as a mere instrument for shareholder wealth accumulation is tamped down, is moderated, and, and we shield our employees from that. We buffer our employees from that effect and we treat them genuinely as colleagues, as associates, uh, as, as team members uh, to, to the extent that we can. So, to, And so across organizations, there's variance in the degree to which that external competition corrodes the, the shared purpose and in the extent to which the employee status, you know, acts as a, as a burden on the dignity of the, of the worker. And so these high road organizations are ones that have taken active steps to, to buffer themselves from those pressures. So as to preserve the, they're not doing necessarily out of the goodness of their heart. They see a path to profitability from, you know, by maintaining that sense of shared purpose against the corrosive effects of competition, maintaining a sense of collegiality against the corrosive effects of, uh, of employee stats. And in the American context, unions are, uh, union, a willingness to work with unions is indicative of an element of that second uh, component. But I take your point, Otti, in other countries, it's not indicative of anything much at all. It's just a legal fact of life. Does that help on the first question? Um, absolutely. And uh, thanks for, for clarifying, because I think for uh, Antoinette and I, this is a, a pretty critical piece of yeah. the equation. Yeah. And I think we had similar arguments with Stefano Zamani about cooperatives or family-owned enterprises. Is that naturally good? Is it correlation? I think that's exactly what you're pointing out to. But um, sorry, I, I interrupted Antoinette. Antoinette, do you want to go to the archetypes? I'll just say, perhaps just say one more thing about this. Worker cooperatives are lovely they get at the second of those two problems I just talked about. They don't get at the first. A worker cooperative, Mondragon is a nice example, lives in a sea of capitalist competition, and that sea, that seawater corrodes the, uh, the, the fabric of cooperation within Mondragon, and I don't need to rehearse for you the sad story of Fagor and the layoffs and all the rest. These are inevitable features. So uh, I'm all for worker cooperatives as a partial step forward, but to imagine that a society composed of worker cooperatives in otherwise capitalist economy, where these cooperatives have to compete for private investment and compete against other cooperatives in market competition, those firms too will have to lay off workers when business goes down, you know, when investors decide that that industry is not so attractive, all of a sudden they, they, the feet get cut out from under them. Right, so worker cooperatives are an important partial step forward, but by themselves only get at one of the two key dimensions of capitalist oppressiveness, as I see it. So um, we are going to take that up in a second uh, again. So basically, it's if you're not in the right system, then the market will always prevail, even internally. And as, as I understood your archetypes and you also use on hybrid correctly it's a, it's very difficult to balance these different principles anyhow you need high trust um, and you have to see that market for instance is not going to corrode um, the needed trust but before we I'm, I'm leaping now um, before we uh, go to the next section I would like you to, to develop just um, the collaborative community because I know a lot of people do not understand um, or don't know it well enough. And I think it's a very interesting archetype and we should okay. know Good. a bit more. Yeah. Um, so I spent, I, I was fascinated by these organizations. I call them high road organizations. In some cases, it's not even really a very good term for them, but they're organizations that uh, were seeking 
to capture the potential competitive advantage of deeper worker engagement. Mm -hmm. So they were actively trying to deal with these two corrosive effects um, that we were just talking about. It, you know, from, from, because from a business point of view, they needed the engagement of their entire workforce in order to sustain the innovation, the, the flexibility, the responsiveness that they needed uh, as a matter of their strategy. Um, so I've spent my first effort to think about what was going on in these organizations was enabling bureaucracy. What, uh, what struck me, because all of these, I was only ever interested in big, complex organizations. I'm not much interested in how we organize teams of 50 or 100 people. That, that seems to me not the humanities problem. I think we know a lot about how to do that pretty well. What we don't know how to do very well is how to organize 10, 100, you know, 200,000 people into one complex enterprise. That's the challenge we face. Um, and so I looked for organizations that were big and complex and seemed to be doing a good job relative to those two challenges I just described. And I noticed that they were all very bureaucratic, you know, according to the standard metrics of bureaucracy, the layers of hierarchy, lots of formal procedures and standards, you know, a pretty extensive division of labor where everyone had their little job, but somehow people were working together towards a common purpose. So I, I, I began describing this as an enabling bureaucracy, thinking that, you know, these, what was characteristic here was that people were in, the people doing the work were involved in developing the standards and that the layers of the hierarchy, you know, were permeable, you know, that the higher levels were interested in input from the lower levels and responsive to that input. The more I thought about it, the more inadequate that seemed as a construct for capturing what was going on. Um, there was something nicely provocative about the conjunction of the word enabling and bureaucracy, right? But that's really to pose a question, not, it doesn't really provide a that label poses a question. It doesn't provide an answer to how it, how it could be that bureaucracy, as we commonly understand it, could prove to be enabling when we have so much evidence that bureaucracy is disabling, is alienating, is oppressive, you know, is regimenting and all the rest of it. So along with Charles Heckscher, we've spent some time trying to think through what's really going on here. And it seemed to us that we found ourselves going back to Max Weber. So Max Weber gives us a typology of social action and a corresponding typology of organization. Weber tells us that human interaction can be motivated by tradition, um, where we, you know, we do the same things because out of habit or reverence for, for some sacred tradition. It can be motivated by effectual commitments, right? We can interact with other people based on the feelings of anger or love or desire we feel for them. They can be instrumentally rational, right? We can interact with other people because we have some, you know, some goal in mind for ourselves and we, we look to maximize what we can get from the other person to satisfy our goals. Or they can be value rational where the, the, where our interaction with others is based on our shared commitment to some higher value. Each of those forms of social action has a corresponding form of organization, traditionalistic organization, the clan. We all know that model very well. The charismatic organization is an organization based on affect, on an emotional connection to an inspiring leader, an inspiring vision. It's, a, it's, a, it's an emotion-driven organization. Instrumental rationally organization, we know that. That's the classic bureaucracy. That's what Weber was all about, right? The value rational behavior is a form of behavior that grounds a distinctive form of organization. It's the collegial organization in Weber's terms. 
And we're all familiar with collegiality as a norm. Those of us who work in universities, we don't often find our departments very collegial, but sometimes on a good day, you know, that, you know, we know what it means to be in a collegial organization. We treat each other as peers. We make decisions by consensus. You know, there's an element of mutual respect based on our, you know, respect for each other's professional training. We usually, in a collegial organization, people typically share that professional socialization and training. So they come to, it, to, to their engagement with others on that basis of a shared background. So what form of organization was this Toyota operation that I studied, the NUMI plant, um, or this Kaiser Permanente organization that I studied? They weren't bureaucratic in Weber's sense. It's true that they had the formal structures of bureaucracy, hierarchy, specialization, all the rest of it. What they didn't have was the instrumental rationality as the prevailing value in the organization. Workers in those organizations were actively engaged in trying to improve performance. They weren't just there to pay the rent. They were contributing voluntarily ideas about how better to build a better car or how to serve their patients better. So that's value rational behavior. That's not instrumentally rational behavior. In those cases, nor was there wasn't very much traditionalism at work either, and nor was there much charismatic leadership as it happens in the organizations I've studied. That hasn't been a big factor. So were these collegial organizations? Well, that's not very satisfying either, really, to call them collegial, because we know what collegial organizations look like, and no, they're small, they're equal, you know, they're flat, you know, they're organic, you know, in the traditional sense of organic. Uh, Numi, Kaiser, these are massive, complex corporations. There's not a flat, organic, collegial, intimate little organization. So what are they? So we eventually came around to deciding that these were a distinctive form of organization that did not, maybe didn't even exist in Weber's time, and that people uh, since Weber have been trying to build, right? And, you know, and what they've been trying to build is a value rational organization at scale. They've been trying to build an organization in which the, the, front, the, 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 the shared value in the, uh, of the shared norm of interaction is one of value rationality. We expect everybody to be contributing to our shared purpose, so that value rational, but we do it at scale. So what, what is it that, that, that enables them to preserve value rationality at scale when Weber taught us that when value rational collegial organizations grow in size and complexity, they inevitably become bureaucratic. And there's surely deep wisdom in that observation of Weber's, right? We've seen that happen all too much, right? Our universities are a great example of how organic collegial organizations of the Middle Ages you know, grew to be these bureaucratic monsters that is the modern university, right? Um, so we don't have, I don't think, the Weber of, collegia, of the collegial value rational organization. I don't claim that Heckscher Adler, you know, equals the new Weber. Right? We haven't theorized it in, this, in, the, in the really compelling way that Weber theorized bureaucracy for us. But our argument is that this is a distinctive form of organization that in some ways is still emergent, right? As, for, as organizations develop tools for sustaining uh, that shared purpose at, at, the, at a large scale, for developing the disciplines that enable them to ensure consistent behavior across such large dispersed organizations, but do it through standards and procedures that are not alienating, that are experienced as, uh, as enabling and, and not coercive, that where we have all these specialized division of labor, but, but, we don't, but those don't congeal into silos that find it too difficult to collaborate. 
right? And where, you know, somehow we preserve, we, to go back to individualism, we preserve that sort of creative individualism at the same time as, as in people's minds, they see it, they, they experience a kind of commitment to the collective good and their willing, willingness to subordinate themselves to the collective disciplines that, uh, that, that have been decided upon. So th- th- we ended up, therefore, sort of conceptualizing this new form of organization. So we called it collaborative to distinguish it from collegial. Um, we, uh, so far, our conceptualization has, has taken us to four kind of oxymoronic sounding propositions. Um, they have to be centralized because they're so complex, but they, their centralization can be participatory. They need standardization because they need efficiency, but the standardization can be done in an enabling way. It doesn't have to be coercive. They need specialization, but the specialization doesn't have to create silos if people are also equipped to work in cross-functional teams, if they have those T-shaped skills that enable them to collaborate effectively. So we call that integrated specialization. And where the individualism doesn't stand in opposition to collectivism, but somehow there's, they acknowledge in their individualism also a sort of interdependence with the others in the, in, in, the, in the organization. So I'm not sure it's a very, very satisfying way of characterizing this new form of organization that seems emergent in, in these organizations I've had a chance to study. Um, but that's as far as we've gotten in our thinking, those four paradoxical sounding principles. I would say one more thing about these paradoxical sounding principles. They sound paradoxical, at least for three of the four of them. They sound paradoxical because we're assuming a capitalist organizational context. To say participative centralization is to say something that sounds paradoxical or oxymoronic because we're so used to living in a world of capitalist organizations where we centralize decision-making precisely in order to avoid hearing that, you know, all the messy voices of the people below who have different ideas about where the organization should go. We ex- deliberately exclude them from deliberations of strategy because we know they have a different idea about where the organization should go than we, top management, do. So we exclude participation. So centralization is a weapon against participation. Similarly, why, why is enabling standardization such a paradoxical sounding idea? It's because we use standards to ensure that unreliable, recalcitrant, irresponsible workers don't screw up. And, and, and so we impose them on them uh, standards. And yes, we expect that to be experienced as coercive, but we say too bad, you know, in, our, you know, in the real world, if you want standardization, you're just going to have to live with the resulting alienation. So notice that in both these cases, it's really the capitalist antagonism between the workers and the, ma- and the, and the organizational leadership that means that participation doesn't, that, that participation seems like opposite to centralization. The standardization seems like the opposite of enabling, right? Whereas if we relieve, if we lifted that constraint of opposition between workers and, and, and bosses' interests, then now it's, it, now it's almost obvious that participation can be married with centralization. It's representative democracy, for Christ's sake. All our countries work on that principle. It's not complicated. And why wouldn't standards be experienced as enabling if we all agreed on them? That agree that these were the standards that will best help us achieve our goals. So if you leave, if you if you lift some of these constraints of capitalist structuring and competition, then these organizing principles become a, a lot less paradoxical in our minds. So it's, it's, here, so this of course we would need another interview to go into the depth. And here I think also a, a an invite from our side because you said earlier there are not many people to talk about some of these things. 
we actually have found a very interesting community here with people like Simone Cicero, Emanuele Quintarelli, and so on. We are, we are debating exactly this. There are, there are new modern forms like holacracy and sociocracy and the Rendon Haye model and higher and so on, which looks at its very basic, what, what um, uh, Henry Mintzberg calls that um, continuous polarity between a differentiation on the one hand, which leads to autonomy, which leads to subsidiarity, vis-a-vis -vis integration, as Mari Parker Follett would call it, which leads to scale, which leads to learning, which leads to the community. And I think in your writing, what I loved was you, you basically said that um, it's not only the right for autonomy, which gives the right of freedom, but there's a, there's a wider right of participation that enables flourishing. And that almost reminded me of um, integral human development, which, of course, is very pertinent to the Christian social teachings. I think your ethos of participation is indeed one of the keys, which, of course, on the other hand, leads me back to our very beginning, because that would be Hegelian thought, so to speak. That would say our consciousness levels have to increase. We have to step differently into the space. That will have a different way that we interact with each other, as opposed to the materialism, which is based on structures. But here, this is, again, where I think both probably have to come into place. The institutional surrounding, as much as the agency development in the individual to see the world differently. I think this is really the space where we are in, and it, it's extremely interesting also in discussion we have with Fr Frederick Laloux and his Teal models and things like that. But I, yeah, may the I, time, I think at this because, point... Yeah, you want to go one step further and I shut up in a second. I just wanted to on. say a constant argumentation we have in that circle is how you can really tame internal competition because unlike standardization, I find that much more difficult. Uh, but anyway, um, that's from a trust researcher uh, and I'm not being nerdy because Otti really wanted to go to the next section because we know that you have to run after a certain time. So I'm holding back. You've triggered one more thought, Paul. Uh, I think on, on behalf of Henry, um, if you want to have a look at his uh, website, ourinterdependence.org, because I think his idea of a um, global declaration of interdependence um, might be very, very close to your thinking of ethos of participation. And by the way, uh, Bill Torbett, with whom we spoke two weeks ago, was talking about interindependence, which I think also very nicely frames what you just spoke about. It requires self-determination and the willingness to, to step into a responsible space on behalf of all, but also allows for that entrepreneurship that you mentioned, that freedom and that dignity of flourishing as an individual. But let's see now, of course, democratic socialism. So this is where, what we've been waiting for. So we've extrapolated this collaborative archetype from some of these um, organizations that you feel bridge the gap between the autonomy and the individual, the community and uh, the participation or solidarity. Now we extrapolate it out. And I want to prime this conversation briefly because you say that's all nice and fine extrapolating these ideas. But if we go to democratic socialism, many people will have um, concerns about this. So we need to make sure we're building a system that is um, not only um, democratic, but it needs to also support innovation. It needs to be efficient because material scarcity is not going to disappear. And we need to make sure that people are sufficiently motivated to contribute and bring themselves in. And I think here, it would be very helpful if you could just briefly frame for us kind of socialism versus social democracy versus communism. 
Um, Antoinette and I had a longer list of free market socialism and, uh, and uh, um, um, direct public, uh, what was it, property owning democracy and so on, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna save that because I think for people listening to us, at least the communism versus social democracy versus socialism would be helpful. And then if you could elaborate the configuration of your democratic socialism, especially the, the free rings and the planning mechanism, if we could prime the conversation um, there, that would be great. Yeah, so um, w when I talk about democratic socialism, let's split the two parts, the socialism and democracy. The socialist part comes from the idea that we would be treating the country's uh, economic resources as common property, as social property, not as private property. Um, uh, and we would decide together somehow uh, how to use those resources to satisfy our goals. In the authoritarian version of socialism, it's some government elite, some party elite that decides what those goals are and decides how to use the country's resources to achieve them. In democratic socialism, there's some democratic process for deciding on the country's goals, on the goals of the industry, the region, the country as a whole, um, and, uh, uh, and deploys those resources to achieve those goals. Uh, in, in, through social property rather than private property. Social democracy, as I understand the term in its most rate, nor, you know, in its standard usage, is more, if any, at, at best, a mixed economy, where the, for the, the, the prosperity of the country still depends essentially on the private enterprise sector, but that ent private enterprise sector is counterbalanced by a welfare state on the one hand that provides public goods, and, and a strong enough welfare state to impose some regulation on the private sector so it doesn't continually destroy public goods. Um, the, the, the reason I'm a socialist and not a democratic socialist is, uh, sorry, the reason I'm a socialist and not a social democrat is because I don't see social democracy as a stable configuration. And I take Sweden's experience over the last 20 years or so as, as pretty exemplary of the challenges facing, uh, uh, facing social democracy once the small country becomes embedded in the global economy. So social democracy can work fine uh, in a small country under certain conditions, but as soon as that country enters the world market the way Sweden was forced to in the late, eight, in the late, the late 1980s, um, you know, then all of a sudden the, the grounds for class compromise uh, are pulled out from, from under the country. Um, I, I said earlier on in the conversation that capitalism can't solve the big crises we face because to solve them would impose too great a cost on the private enterprise sector, would cripple the private enterprise sector. And I think that's, I, I'll sustain that, that position in this part of the conversation too. Um, so capitalism of which social democracy is a form. If you push social democracy far enough and have a mixed economy, invariably the, the mixed economy is, is between a private enterprise sector that's creating new wealth and a public sector that's creating, that's buttressing the private sector, that doesn't displace the private sector in creating wealth for the country, but provides some infrastructure, provides buttressing elements, doesn't displace it. And my argument is that, that combination works fine under very special conditions, but can't solve the big challenges that eventually emerge in the hurly-burly of a world capitalist market. 
Um, as for communism, um, I don't think of it as a distinctive form of social organization. Um, uh, uh, arguably, the, the countries that you would normally call communist um, are, in my language, reasonably described as authoritarian forms of socialism. Um, uh, and I'm not sure I need to go much further than that. Uh, I, there's, there's lots of reasons why authoritarian socialism is, rep is, is repugnant to us. Um, it, it turns out not, not to be economically effective either. Um, and it, it's pretty clear that we need a, 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 that we need, we want as socialists to re-embed the economy in society. Government is the privileged vehicle for that re-embedding process, but we need to make sure that government is, itself, is also re-embedded in civil society. At the moment, government stands outside civil society and above and opposed uh, in many cases to civil society. Uh, it is responsive, government is responsive above all to the needs of the private sector, of the private enterprise sector. Um, that's the sine qua non of the con continuation of a capitalist economy, is that we preserve the profitability, the jobs, the wealth creation process in the private sector. Um, and so uh, in a socialist world, we re-embed government in civil society, democratizing government, right? And we re-embed the economy within society by putting it under our collective governmental control. That's the way I see it. And as I said, communism in that picture uh, is a kind of a deformed form of socialism you know, with these authoritarian characteristics. Does that, does that do enough to set the ground for us? We haven't yet, we have now understood that state socialism is what nobody wants. Um, and I think we just need to dig a little bit deeper with the democratic socialism. Right. I think if, if you could go to, I think the, the two things um, that we could add to the um, basics is, is the free kind of concentric circles that yeah. you are envisaging in yeah. terms of different uh, forms of government control yeah. and uh, maybe what the rationale is for those and yeah. the um, mechanism of planning that you're or, or collaborative strategizing that you're you suggest right so yeah i thought three rings is sort of one way to represent what this society might look like the three rings i had in mind in the book uh, were some of our enterprises will simply become public agencies right uh, in the in the united states most of our electricity generation is through uh, investor-owned utilities there's no reason to have investor-owned utilities. Nationalize the damn things, turn them into government agencies. We'll have a ministry of industry. It'll run the electricity generation process for us. You know, it'll take input from local communities about the siting of various facilities, all the rest of it. There's no reason why that should not be run as a government utility. Uh, so that's ring number one, is organizations that are simply part of the government apparatus, their extension of government. Ring number two, you might imagine another group of socialized enterprises where, you know, they don't own their own equipment or land, they lease those from the government. Government, uh, our, our representatives in government, through consultation with civil society in various forms, articulate some goals, economic, environmental, social goals, through a process, through a kind of collaborative planning process. Those goals are then put to these enterprises in the second ring, 
And those enterprises are those the enterprise governance committees are asked to make proposals for how they can contribute to our shared goals at the regional, industry, and national level. But there's a dialogue there. They're not just part of the government of the, the core government agencies, right? They're independent entities, albeit operating, you know, on leased equipment and, and, and land from the government and uh, reliant on government financing. But there's a dialogue there as to how the enterprise is going to satisfy. The, the, the planning goals that we set for ourselves. So that's the second ring. And then the third ring would be the residue of private enterprise. Depending on how you envisage this and where and what stage of maturation the socialist system could be, that might be a bigger ring of, you know, a fairly substantial. So we're, we're closer to a mixed economy at that point, right? Or it might be a smaller one. Perhaps, you know, you know perhaps it's restricted to enterprises of under 50 people in size. Um, but they operate quite independently. They still need to get funding through state fund, state investment banks. But the state investment banks have a portfolio, have a, a reserve put aside for entrepreneurial ventures outside the, the socialized sector, and they'll be looking for exciting new opportunities that are being proposed by people in that third ring. And people launch new businesses. They launch it. They're, 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 maybe will require them to be in the form of worker cooperatives. Let's see what form makes sense for this third ring. You know, and at some point, if they grow to be successful, they get bought out by one of the enterprises in the first or the second ring. Right? And so it's a, it's, a, it's a buyout option for the founders of these new enterprises that are not going to yield for them the kinds of ridiculous riches that flow to successful IPOs in the current set, set system, but we'll give you a nice big gold badge and tell you what a wonderful job you've done to society and we'll add another $10 to your, you know, to your, monthly, uh, uh, to your monthly paycheck you know, because you've done such a brilliant job for society by launching this new business. My feeling is that as best I can tell, all the research confirms that, you know, the big breakthroughs uh, in um, our lives from a technological point of view, sort of innovative new products and processes are not, it doesn't, none of that has much to do with financial incentives. It has everything to do with pride of purpose. Um, you know, we have a, there's an old literature from the 1960s about need for achievement, uh, you know, and uh, the, the evidence is very strong that entrepreneurs are driven much more by need for achievement than any pecuniary uh, goals, you know, riches that they're aspiring for. So I'm, uh, it seems to me you could have a lively entrepreneurial, creative, innovative sector in that third ring, as well as all sorts of incentives for innovation in the second and the first of these three rings. So that was my thought. So yes, some, in, in terms of process, um, my idea was, you know, we, 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 we all have some experience of better managed big corporations and their strategic planning processes. Quite a few of them have, have developed um, mechanisms for involving middle managers and even frontline employees in the, in the identification of new strategic opportunities, in the identification of strategic threats, in identifying the strengths and weaknesses that, are, you know, that we need to build on or remedy in order to enable us to achieve our goals. You know, let's have that dialogue in our cities, in our enterprises, in our industries, and at the national level. And you know, we can, I, I don't think it's that difficult to imagine a national dialogue about what our goals are, and then a second round of national dialogue about what specific plans might enable us to reach those goals. And then a third dialogue, a third round of dialogue about budgeting, about what resources everyone is going to get in order to, in order to pursue those. That's, those are the three cycles of corporate planning that we see in big corporations. It's a pretty robust process there. 
And it's not that difficult, I think, to imagine that this could play out on a, the biggest scale of regions and, 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 and country uh, or European Federation on the one hand, and, you know, and industry and, and, and national or international economy on the other. That's, that's the goal as I see it. So, um, I mean, of course, we have prepared quite a lot, especially about the planning process. So I don't know whether Otti wants to go in there with his um, background coming from companies. Um, but otherwise, because I think you get that all the time, that this is the one part where everybody kind of tries to find out, is that possible? Is that feasible? What problems are we going to have? Um, but Let I'm, me just say this, perhaps, if I can. To, yeah, sorry to but, you know, I, I, I'm kind of amazed that so many of our management colleagues speak so disparagingly about corporate planning. <laughs> I don't know what world they live in, but every large business that I've ever had a chance to study, they have corporate plans, they have objectives, they have strategies, they document them, they measure them, they follow, their, they track their performance. Um, oh, I mean, you know, this, with all due respect, join our world for a while, right? So even in the, during the pandemic, I, I sat in... 16 replanning plans of the corporate budget for a 45,000 uh, people organization in 40 countries. And it's the worst process you can imagine. And I think in all the conversations we're having about beyond budgeting and the likes, that is really the part where people are saying, separate the budgeting from the performance, make sure that the bottom-up targeting is not cascaded. So I think this traditional version of some clever people in the head office, even if there might be some participation Absolutely. or dialogue around this and then cascade it down is, is in our belief, not effective. And I'm I can totally, tell you, I mean, I'm I was, totally on board. I'm totally on board with that. Adi. I don't have any, I don't have any problem. All I'm saying is that people love to talk as if planning was a waste of time. We experience a lot of bad planning. We, we, we experience a lot of bad planning. But there's, there's only one thing worse than bad planning, and that's no planning at all. And, uh, well, there's some of that. There's some of that. But as, as Henry Mitzberg said, strategy is not tomatoes in a hothouse. It's weeds growing in the garden. I think you have to make sure that you're getting sufficient agility around the process. And I can tell you, and then here, as Antoinette said, we, we need to move on. But uh, I mean, every two weeks, uh, I was sitting in an investment government committee and we were investing about one and a half billion a year in, in new technologies and the likes. And frankly, the idea that we could just kind of make that a democratic process is, is, um, is not working. I can tell you for each of those business cases for 100 million, I would study days and nights for, for weeks. And I'm a trained person who had great visibility over everything that was going on across countries. And there were financial tables, as much as uh, comparative analyses, as much of uh, technology questions about whatever cybersecurity regulation, where you really had to have expertise knowledge. And hence, in my books, um, we really need to look, and I think you're making the differentiation between technical and institutional. We really need to look into which conversations, which strategies, which decisions could be taken by a larger group of people, by whom, and how would it would it come together? And again, I think the weakest the weakest point in your argumentation for me is clearly the notion that it is already a hugely complex process and very difficult at an enterprise level when we're talking about large enterprises. And again, Amazon is a little bit misleading because when you go into monoproduct businesses, it's slightly different to multi-country, multi-product businesses and so on in my experience. 
But the, the idea that you could just extrapolate that out and say, okay, that works pretty well. Let's take it to Germany, right? 83 million countries across all sectors and so on. It's, I think, as Antoinette says, this is where the big questions come in. Mm. And I think yeah. you are onto mm. something. But I would also contend that the traditional planning process is not what we're aiming for in agile organizations today. Uh, and I'm, I, I think that's really important, all the, 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 the work you're doing to critique the, the existing planning processes and think about different kinds of planning processes that are more agile. Absolutely, I'm all for that. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I've stopped using the word planning to describe the process that I think we need. I, I've, you, you may have noticed I keep on using this word strategizing yeah. because I think one of the things we have learned in corporations is that what we need to guide people's behavior is not a detailed itinerary mm -hmm. for every individual in every role in the, across the entire organization. It's not, a, you know, it's not a detailed task assignment that we're expecting to emerge from this planning process. There's an enormous amount of decentralized initiative and creativity and flexibility associated with corporate strategizing. You decide what, if you're doing this right, presumably you decide on a small number of parameters that need to be set at that higher level, and you leave people a lot of freedom in how they respond to that. That's part of the strategizing process. It's part of the modern process of planning, but people associate the word planning with detailed planning by central over everybody, everybody else's activity below. And if that's what we mean by planning, then you're surely right, Adi. Planning is, a, is, is not going to work. It, hardly, it doesn't work at the corporate level. It'll work even less well at the national level. But strategizing, understood as the mechanism for defining what variables need, what parameters need to be set at the higher level, orchestrating the dialogue to set them right, right, and, and creating a context within which the lower levels can, can pursue uh, can pursue those same shared goals, right? But with some autonomy about how they do it, that's an essential component of any kind of strategizing within the enterprise or within the national level. And, I, I, and it's that common sense, that modern common sense that you were just describing to us. Planning can't work. We need something that raises flexibility. Let's give it another name. Allow me to call it strategizing. I think that common sense, I think we can scale up to, 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 to govern the work of these public, this public uh, uh, publicly owned kind of massive enterprise we're going to call the country. And I just wanted to say when, uh, whenever you're going to work further on that, um, that's of course you also wrote that's um, kind of laying out the basic idea and then it's about experimentation and of course um, buffering that up. So unfortunately, because I would really love to talk about with you um, Why don't we take another, I'll just be late to my next meeting. Why don't we take another 15 minutes? Are you sure? Okay. We're having, we're having too much fun. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Because I was uh, wanting to go to the transformation. And I mean, um, we already heard, um, it, it, I, I find it a great idea to bring in these ideas from organizations. Also a little bit, of course, um, that you would have managers like Oti then maybe helping you later to flesh this out. That's uh, part of the idea. Um, but I'm still kind of looking at the scenarios you were picturing, and I would like to look not at the catastrophe uh, scenarios, but at the um, idea that it can really be done more in a reform way, in a political action on a broad scale way. 
Um, and here I just would like to ask you, what do we need for that? Do we need to make the narrative more attractive? Do we need to flesh out some of the things we were just discussing uh, more in detail? Um, do we need to educate people? Because, I mean, um, you also complained rightly so that in the business schools we have only preached, and I think they're really the neoliberal paradigm. So what, what do we have to do now in order to make everybody ready for that? Good. Yes. Great question. Since you're going to be editing this, let me just go back and uh, just make a little comment to Artie. <laughs> Artie the, 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 the planning issues that you were just talking about a second ago, um, it reminds me of, of, of a concern I have. I see very little academic scholarship on what this new strategizing process looks like. Absolutely. There's almost nothing in the scholarly literature. This is exactly, and, and sorry, uh, Paul, and, and I'm very willing, together with Antoinette, to have another conversation on this. And, and Henry Minsberg was editing his book on structure, looking beyond adhocracy, which was his original idea, and what we're seeing is heterogeneous kind of structures, we're seeing ambidextrous organizations, we're seeing people going beyond agile. There's a lot, a lot, a lot happening. And I'm always, always challenging the academics with whom we speak. They've never heard about sociocracy in practice. Or when I say Rendon Hayi, they don't seem to actually know what we're doing. And a lot of that is going exactly into your space. And by the way, it's using platforms, it's using ecosystems where it's not only the firm, it's, again, like you say, beyond the firm. And you're suggesting that we need mechanisms to regulate inter-firm interdependencies. Yeah, right. And some of this is already happening in these ecosystems that yeah. we're seeing from the bottom yes, up. Yes, and yes, I yes, think, yes. to Antoinette's point, I think you are absolutely onto something. I feel the, and uh, going back to collegial organizations, frankly, what we have seen so far between thinkers like yourselves and many others in this space, there is no bloody interaction. You guys are not talking to each other, right? Mm -hmm. And frankly, the, only if people can start to brainstorm some of these ideas yeah. across politics, mm -hmm. across organizations, and the practitioners in the space, can we make progress? And there's absolutely, I think, a benefit in what you say, if we could evolve this. I don't know if I wanted to ever go towards really a national economic circle of people not understanding anything I do in my business, trying to come up with kind of... Uh, hard targets or anything like that but i certainly see the value of what you say in terms of great we call it mission control right mm -hmm. so high level yeah, right. um yeah. out there objectives like with okrs that that's could right. certainly be something that can be cascaded it would require politicians also to be much more accountable towards um the the populace and politicians in a wider sense they could be representatives at these councils but someone would still represent us Right, so I think. Um, but Otti, it's also still a problem in organizations. I mean, you were just writing beyond budgeting. I mean, as an HR professor, I go into these organizations. Um, now they have finally uh, realized that they should, you know, do away with individualized incentives. Um, they also are reforming their uh, goals to a certain degree. And then, of course, all this budgeting nonsense comes into, into the game and they can't do what they really should, do, should be doing in order to liberate their organizations. So I think um, that, that's really a big, big, big um, topic for practice and for research. And you're right. Um, I find strategy research, even strategy as practice where they are going a good step towards that, um, still lacking 
they're still very much in, even some of them are still in the planning, very, very strongly in the planning. And onto that, and, and Paul, the other thing, frankly, we haven't talked about complexity science, right? We are looking at the whole kind of uh, system thinking, complexity thinking, how does that come into the play? Uh, network and um, social capital analysis. What can we learn from social change and social systems? Uh, Damon Chantala and the likes, uh, how do we build social proofs? What's the relevance of communication and power in this space? And so, so I think there are a lot of aspects that can come into a much more informed theory. And it was interesting, Stefano Zamani said, we, in, in economics, we don't have a theory of change. We can describe model A, we can describe model B, but we don't have a pathway to get from one to the other. And unless we're Marxists in the true sense to say evolution would be another option, but they're very, very seldom looking at dynamic series. We know that, yeah. Let's go back to Antoinette's question uh, <laughs> about, uh, about getting from here to there. Um, so I do think we should take cognizance first of the, the paths via catastrophe, right? Um, uh, I, I assert, and I think the evidence supports the proposition that capitalism is a system of recurrent economic and financial crises. Uh, that much seems to be baked into the fundamental features of capitalism. God knows we can debate why, but it's an empirical fact. Um, and so there'll be another one of those soon enough. Um, and who knows what, how people respond in the face of a massive crisis. The, the political cards will be, will be shaken up uh, as they are in every one of these major economic crises, for better and for worse. So that opens up new possibilities, good and bad. Environmental catastrophe. You know, there's no doubt that we're going to be facing environmental catastrophes. And again, in the face of environmental catastrophes, political horizons uh, open up again for, for good and for bad for fascistic kind of trends in you know eco-fascism is, is a live lively current of thought unfortunately you know but eco-socialism no less lively but then you ask about more gradual paths um and uh, uh, now we go back to our discussion about social democracy uh, as distinct from democratic socialism the paths that we're talking about i think are paths via social democracy where we elect more progressive governments, um, you know, the United States, Biden, better than the alternative, you know, Bernie Sanders, better again, perhaps. In Europe, you know, you have similar opportunities, you know, to advance, uh, uh, to, to, to elect a form of government that could be more attentive to the social and environmental uh, challenges. My argument it would be, as I, just to repeat my earlier point, that to the extent that they, that government, in this more progressive government goes after uh, solutions to our environmental and social and economic challenges in a serious way, they are going to end up in confrontation with the business community. And in that confrontation, you know, people will have opinions about whose side they want to be on in that confrontation. And, uh, you know, social democracy, when Swedish social democracy came under enormous stress uh, at the last part of the previous century, they could have tipped forward into a more socialist economy, but instead they tipped back into something more, you know, sort of a, a neoliberal turn uh, away from their their, 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 their their foundations in social democracy, privatizing uh, um, a lot of decision-making that had previously been done in a more socialistic way. Um, so I think the, the, the path here is via building mass movements, 
uh, around, you know, the, the various uh, fundamental challenges we face, um, bringing those social movements together in the United States context, that's a huge challenge. I think it's also increasingly a challenge in Europe, in Europe where the old social democratic parties have lost their hegemonic role on the left. And now we see a proliferation of parties of all different stripes. Um, so you're, you're, you're finding yourself in a similar situation where the United States has been for many decades, where we have many different contending forces on the left uh, and bringing them together in some united vision is incredibly difficult. The infighting is intense. But um, I would say that I'm not sure I have much new to offer on, 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 on a strategy for doing that. The one thing that I would point out is that if the conservative forces in the United States have had such great success, a lot of it is because they read Lenin and took it seriously. They understood that if you have a dedicated core of professional revolutionaries, you don't need very many people to transform a society. And they have a dedicated core of activists that work locally in school councils, in city councils, in neighborhood committees, in their local churches. The conservative right, the, 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 especially the, the, the more sort of Christian fundamentalist activist far right in American politics, have been incredibly effective Leninists in, 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 in doing that deep work of convincing their fellow citizens of their point of view. They get into real conversations with the people at the local school board meeting, at the local church uh, session on a Sunday morning. The left has, does not do that work in the United States. Maybe in other countries they do. But it does seem to me that unless we get to work seriously as a movement and engage our fellow citizens in deeper conversations about where we're headed and what the real issues are, then we're not going to make any progress. The, uh, political advertisements don't change minds. Conversations change people's minds. And, which, and, that's, and that's not just some amorphous kind of uh, recommendation that we all talk to our fellow human beings on, in the neighbourhood. Let's get serious. Let's organise these conversations. Let's organise some people to get together and, and make sure these conversations happen. And I think there's lessons that we need to learn on the left, you know, from the far right, who have been incredibly disciplined and effective. And, and hats off to them. They've convinced people of the craziest ideas you know, just because they've been willing to do it on a one-to-one -one basis, on a sincere, heartfelt, one-to-one -one basis. Um, they've convinced people that global climate change is a hoax, that COVID is a hoax, that the vaccines don't work. I mean, madness. They've convinced people that abortion is a crime against humanity. They've convinced people of this madness, right? And why? Because they've taken the time to talk to people. So I think there's a lot of work to be done by an organized progressive movement that actually goes door to door, meeting to meeting, household to household, bar to bar. <laughs> it doesn't all have to be in church. It can be in the bars too. But you've got to get to where the people are and do the work. Yeah. It's so, not just all about Karl Marx there. I was just, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, this is exactly what happened in Germany as well, um, that the, the, the uh, populist right, they did uh, this groundwork and uh, uh, the traditional left party, they lost a lot of votes in, East, in the eastern part exactly because of that. Uh, but that also means that we need to be more of a collaborative community also across movements, which is probably even more difficult um, because we then have our, you know, holy values and need to kind of bridge it. But I think that's really a core thing to learn and, and also something to take with. And we could have a look at this um, 
um, in universities as well, but I think we leave it now um, because I'm really a little bit sensitive for your time. And I don't want you to leave uh, without the lightning quiz. So Otti is going to do the lightning quiz with you now. Okay. But just, I am... I, I, don't I, you have I, another question again? <laughs> no, 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 no. I would just make a comment because I think... Um, I love that last bit, Paul. You, you started to really sound like the activist and revolutionary that we were sure you would be. You, you, you started by saying I'm an introvert and uh, then that uh, kind of made me isolated. But passionate, I thought you, passionate you introvert, really, the passion came out. And I just, before we go to the quiz, I just wanted to quote to give everybody who is listening a little bit of that um, hidden revolutionary in the introvert um, Cut off uh, because you've written the paper and we cannot go there, but it's um, you, you, you titled it very nicely, which was it's time for reflection in business schools. But then the first paragraph read um, the facts are clear. Executives have plundered firms assets with stock options, loans and other forms of compensation with handsome side payments to auditor consultants and banks in the forms of fees, interest payments, loans, etc., Auditors have aided and abetted in the crime by hiding from stockholders and other social constituents the perilous states of their enterprises, their appetites whetted by a speculative stock market bubble, predatory insiders, in, in brackets, executives, auditors, investment bankers, consultants, hark, hark, whoever's listening, have betrayed their legal and moral responsibilities, and so on. So I think, um, Paul, I can only say... Um, we had Bruno Fry here was talking about uh, publications as prostitution in business schools. I think you're t picking up the baton very, very nicely, or the baton, very nicely here with that revolutionary epos. But now go to the closure. Um, so the quiz idea is in a minute, and we, we probably have really two minutes. It's just to get your final reflections, and it's really just to close us out and then um, close the call. So... Five questions um, with a little bit of multiple choice or any comment that you might have. The first question is to create, in brackets, more of a good life. You would rather, option one, revive Karl Marx and write Capital 2.0 or Das Kapital 2.0. Secondly, team up with Yanis Varoufakis to form a movement for democratic socialism. Um, or thirdly, spend a year as a spy as the, at the World Economic Forum to find evidence against Klaus Schwab's uh, stakeholder capitalism. Which of the three <laughs> options would you, would you go for? Uh, well, I've already tasked my, one of my sons to do number two. Uh, he works with Yanis Varoufakis on a, with a group called Progressive International. Uh, so we've got that one covered. Um, uh, the Karl Marx aspiration, I think uh, I left it a little late. So, But I think, um, I, I think we need more undercover research. I, I think there's a lot we don't know or if we know we don't talk about, uh, about this, the, the thinking of senior executives. Recently, for example, um, we had some undercover work that revealed that oil companies in the United States were pressing for a carbon tax, were pressing the Biden administration to implement a carbon tax. In private, they explained to this undercover reporter, proposing as a kind of would-be lobbyist or something, um, explaining that the reason they were advocating a carbon tax was because the, precisely they knew that it would 
uh, stimmy any legislative changes whatsoever, that it was a, the kind of thing that they could advocate and that would just force the whole discussion doing anything about climate change to a, to a stall. Um, and so the, the cynical manipulation of our politics by corporate leaders who say one thing and do another behind the scenes, I think that, that, that we never have enough denunciation of their duplicity. Um, and um, uh, I have a lot of respect for a lot of corporate leaders. Um, I, I think a lot of them are doing the very best they can under difficult circumstances. But there's a lot of others who are, you know, who are, who, who are not doing the Lord's work, but rather the devil's work and uh, unmasking and denouncing their uh, betrayal of humanity, I think is a worthy endeavor. And so, yes, if I had enough uh, youthful spirit, oh, that's, that's what I'd go do. And, and I, it's I'd interesting, I'm just coming from the Web Summit in Lisbon, where, of course, this, this summit was opened with Francis Hogan's testimony, so to speak, against Facebook. So very pertinent to what you say. The second question is a standard question, which we have um, expanded to suit potential interests in you. So the, the question is, good societies need what? Good leaders, good rules, or good citizens? But to give you more choices, we've added shared purpose and shared property. So which would be your favorite or combination? Um, I would go with shared property. And the reason is simple. I think our democracy is undermined by the private property system that characterizes capitalism. We, when the discussion about what to do, about how fast to kill off the fossil fuel industry, when that discussion is, uh, it, it, it takes place in a society in which you have massive private enterprises in that industry, our democratic discussion about what to do about that industry is, is, is undermined by the vested interests that those industries represent. That the workers in those industries are not happy to see their coal mine shut down is one thing. We can have a de public debate about that. But when you have enterprises with huge resources right, anchored in the fossil fuel industry, those vested interests are, are cancerous to the fabric of democratic dialogue. And until we socialize ownership over those productive assets, we are always going to be confronted by this fifth column in our midst of vested interests of corporations who are trying to distort, undermine, deny climate change, do whatever it takes to, to, to maintain their economic interest. And, and, and so your question's an interesting conundrum, but if I had to pick one, I would say socializing the ownership of the country's productive resources would at least give us a, 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 a context in which we could have a meaningful public debate about what our, what our goals should be. Very interesting. Bruno Frey was uh, pointing out the importance of special interest, and he's coming from a public choice perspective. And Luigino Bruno was always saying we have to own the commons without owning the property. So I think uh, interesting parallels. Um, three more to go. Um, a simple choice. Karl Polanyi, John Dewey, Alistair McIntyre, or Antonio Gramsci? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'll take them all. You take them all? Well, I like that. We, I think we will end up taking them all as well. <laughs> um, universal basic income, yes or no? No. Not a fan. Not a fan. I, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, ladies and gentlemen. 
No, staying home on your butt, you know, in exchange for, your, for a basic income, that's not what the world needs. There's a lot of work we need to have done out there. And, you know, so yes, you, 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 you contribute, you know, we feed you. You don't want to contribute, fine, we're not going to let you starve. But no, that's not, universal basic income is not our solution. There is no threat of mass unemployment from technological change. The threat of mass unemployment comes from the, the anarchy of the capitalist marketplace. We have lots of empirical studies of the effect of technological change on employment levels. And we know there's never been a technological revolution that's had more than a tiny effect on the aggregate unemployment level. Massive effects on local, specific firms, industries, communities, massive effects that call out for public policy remedies. Right, but at the aggregate level, no such uh, no such effect transpires. We do have massive unemployment waves of unemployment, but that, that that's got to do with the ups and downs of this chaotic system we call capitalism, not to do with technological change. So, if you know, if that's the, if if unemployment is the problem, then socialism is the cure, not a universal basic income and keeping capitalism. Revolutionaries coming out more and more. Ladies and gentlemen, have a look at uh, the paper that Paul has written on the future of work as well. I'm sure some of these thoughts will come into there. And uh, last two, is bureaucracy dead? Yes or no? Oh, no. I just got a pub- I, I just got acceptance for a big paper in the annals of the Academy of Management on the future of bureaucracy, the glorious future of bureaucracy, with a terrific young colleague by the name of Pedro Montero. Um, and uh, bureaucracy is the by far the most dominant form of organization uh, in the la- economic landscape of all our economies. And there's absolutely no sign that it's disappearing. So dep- the, the formal structure of bureaucracy, the ethos of the narrow specialist bureaucrat who doesn't care about it, that's changing. But the formal structure of hierarchy, division of labor, formal procedures and so forth, that's not going away as best I see it at all. You know, I'll see how much Antoinette is smiling because that's what she's constantly saying. And she's waiting for our conversation with Michele Zanini and uh, Gary Hamel about their work on humanocracy to pick up exactly this thought. Um, final one, Cuba, Germany, China, or the US? <laughs> hey, none of them are very inspiring. None of them are very... No, I, you know, I, I, I'm making a pitch for something that the world hasn't seen. And some people say, well, if we haven't seen it, then why would you imagine it's possible? I, that's a fair question. But not having seen it does not mean it's impossible. That's a logical error, just to say that because we haven't seen it, it's impossible. No, you know, it's, uh, I have a challenge demonstrating to people it is possible, I, I grant your point, but um, uh, no, no, we've not seen anything resembling democratic socialism on any scale beyond the miniature collegial organization. Um, and so uh, this is a novel form of, of, of uh, but capitalism too was unprecedented when it, it burst on the scene, you know, and uh, I mean, you could find proto-capitalism in ancient Greece. Yes, fine. But capitalism as a social system was a novel idea. It's Adam Smith grasped it and, and theorized it. And, you know, socialism one day will make itself manifest on the planet and will, and will have its own new theories. We normally ask a final question as to what you would change in the world. I think on that plateau year that you just give, there's no better ending. And I want to actually end up with a quote which you make, which is, Democracy might have lost it, its luster, but cynicism is, is the most powerful weapon of the elites that rule today. And maybe you have uh, today, again, helped some people to go a little bit beyond that cynicism by painting a potential utopia out there. And I think you've also shown willingness to work with others to improve it further. 
to go beyond the current system. And uh, Paul, we've been waiting for this moment a long time and it was splendid. Thank you so much for your time. We've truly enjoyed it. And um, as always, um, Antoinette, last work to you. But Paul, it, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I can't say anything um, else. It was great and you really challenged us. Um, you probably know um, Olsen who wrote this book, the book on varieties of anti-capitalism. So you don't know what we have been all reading in order to prepare. And it was really, it was enlightening. So I really loved it. And um, yeah, perfect. Thank you very much that you took your time. Well, thank you both so much. I greatly appreciate such a kind of... Uh, um, engaged conversation as I've managed as with the two of you it's a rare opportunity to, to to dig in and explore these ideas with coming from different directions as we all are and I greatly appreciate the chance to talk it's been fabulous really appreciate it thanks so much thank you very much and with that we close the recording and stay tuned speak to okay. you all again soon all right be well thank, thank you very much thank, thank you, Paul. you very much bye, -bye.